Thanks for bringing your Bibles today. If you have them with you, we're going to turn to 2 Samuel, the 6th chapter. I'm going to read for us verses 9 through 23. Of course, if you don't have your Bibles, we'll put the words on the screen for you. Continuing this series that we've entitled, We Give. I trust it's uh, being a blessing to you. This is the story of David, King David, and his attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant the symbolic reference of God Almighty in the presence of the, of the nation of Israel, bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem for the first time. And it's a, it's a compelling story, and I think uh, we have much from it which we can learn. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, as you're able, would you please stand to hear this important story? Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom, everything he has, because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in the, its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. May God inspire us through this important story. You may be seated. Now, some context. By this point in the story, David is no longer this uh, ruddy shepherd boy. He's not, he's not a young man. He is now the king of Israel. He has unified all the tribes of Israel. He's at the peak of his career. He, he is a man of prominence and power and position. He has the, uh, become the most significant man on the face of the earth. He has been blessed of God to be the spiritual and political and economic military leader of the most ascendant kingdom of his day, the kingdom of Israel. Now at this point, David senses that there's only one thing left to do to solidify not only the nation's uh, status in the world, but, uh, but of his leadership and God's favor and blessing in it. And that is to bring the Ark of the Covenant and pitch it in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. To bring the Ark 
for the first time to Jerusalem. Now, David's intention is to make Jerusalem not only the military and political capital of Israel, but also the religious and spiritual capital of Israel as well. It's a good, it's a good impulse. So he goes with the best of intentions with a large contingent of soldiers. Indeed, earlier in this chapter, we read that 30,000 foot soldiers actually go with him. And there is a huge procession. The instruments are playing. The officials are in place. He collects the ark. He places it on a two-wheeled ox cart. And he starts back to Jerusalem with much fanfare. Then we read that the oxen stumbled. And somehow the cart jostles. And one of the men that is attending the ark along the way, his name is Uzzah. He reaches out to steady the ark, and he is struck dead. Now, now, maybe you remember this story. The one law of the Ark of the Covenant is simply this. Thou shalt not draw nigh unto it, nor touch it, lest you die. shouldn't get close to it, and you shouldn't touch it, lest you die. I mean, so there's only one rule, and that was it. Uzzah, with the best possible motives, reaches to prop up the ark, and God strikes him dead. Now, God doesn't need anyone to prop him up, apparently. God can handle it by himself. The moment we reach for it with our hands, we may suffer for it. David had made a mistake in the first place. The Ark of the Covenant should have been transported by the priests on their shoulders, not on some two-wheeled Philistine ox cart. David did a good thing the wrong way. Is that possible to do? To do the right thing the wrong way? <laughs> well, as we begin a new year, uh, it's always a great joy, I think, to consider the subject of stewardship. You know, it's, it's time to take assessment. In this series, we've been asking the question, is the motives, are the motives of, of my heart, are they right? Are they attuned to God? Does that manifest itself in uh, a reflection, an indication of my generosity and my kind-heartedness toward others? And it's an important, uh, an important time of the year to uh, consider such things. Uh, we've all heard these statistics about how prominent the issue of money and possessions is in the, in the context of, of the biblical reference. 38 recorded parables of Jesus, 18 of those deal with money and possessions. Um, 500 verses in the Bible on prayer and faith, over 2,000 verses in the Bible pertaining to money and possessions. It's not a coincidence. Uh, as I mentioned last week, either you will master your money or your money will master you. Because money makes people do funny things, doesn't it? <laughs> Heard the story of a woman whose name was Mrs. Smith. She decided to have her portrait painted. And the artist came and she said to the artist, I want you to paint me with huge diamond earrings and a, and a striking diamond necklace. She said, on each, each wrist, I want you to put dazzling emerald bracelets <laughs> and and as a brooch uh, on my dress I want this massive ruby pennant and the artist said but but you're not wearing any of this jewelry and Mrs. Smith said well I know it's in case if I die I know my husband will remarry and I want his new wife to go nuts looking for that jewelry <laughs> and all the women said amen yeah that's right David reached out to embrace the blessing of God for his kingdom and for posterity. He wanted the presence and blessing of God to be at the center of his kingdom, available to his people. 
And what happens here is that God, God rejects his attempt to do that because David pursued a good and godly goal with man-made methods. Now follow that, if you will, for a minute. The strategy often proves destructive when we try to displace God's plan, God's way, God's direction, and supplant it with our own idea and our own methods. When Uzzah reaches to steady the jostling ark on top of that cart and is struck dead, how many of you know that this 30,000 person parade and procession with the band and the officials and, the, and all of the singing and all of the, all the pageantry, how many of you know that the parade is over? I mean, you can just imagine the shock and the and the quiet now filtering out along the along the path along the way among thirty thousand people. I, within thirty seconds or so, you can imagine that the only sound anyone is hearing are the laments of Uzzah's wife. It's it's a shocking shocking moment. Everybody stops and looks at Uzzah, and David names the place Perez Uzzah. Perez means to, uh, to break out or an outbreak. And so he names the place, as it is to this day, Perez Uzzah, where God broke out against Uzzah. And now Uzzah is dead. As someone said, Uzzah was a good man. But now he's dead. We receive here a glimpse of how the Israelites viewed God. This is a window into the theological worldview of these Israelites. Uh, imagine what they may, must think about God. Uh, he was a God who lived cooped up behind a wall. He lived, in, he lived somehow around this box, this wooden box that Moses constructed in the wilderness, this ark, the Ark of the Covenant, about four feet long and two feet wide and tall. And it's just a small box. Uh, God ordered that the, the, the tablets that Moses carried down from Sinai with inscribed by the finger of God with the Ten Commandments to be placed inside. And so this was placed in the most holy place inside the tent, this, this ark placed inside this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, this worship center for the Israelites in the wilderness of Sinai. And now uh, David with this unified, unified tribes and, and wishing to establish Jerusalem as the, as the capital city wants to bring the ark. And it's a good impulse, but he does it he does it outside of God's best plan. And God, God is viewed by these Israelites as a God who lives behind the, behind the curtain. He's behind the wall. He's powerful. He's mighty. But he's dangerous. And if he gets loose, somebody's going to get hurt. They, they've made the mistake. And he broke out. God made a breach, if you will. He, he broke out of the wall onto Uzzah. And now Uzzah is dead. And everyone's shocked by it, terrorized by it. Now, how did he get out? We, we thought we had him in the box. <laughs> how did he get out? We thought he, we had him behind the wall there, behind the, the big curtain. <laughs> how did he get loose? God has gotten loose. I have a few thoughts this morning. The first is this, that sometimes we, we choose in our own journey of faith safety over presence. Safety over presence. Verses 9 to 11, David stops the parade and some kind of moment, a spontaneous moment, obviously everyone is just shocked by the moment. David is angry and he's fearful and there's emotions are ripping through him and David realizes, look, I can't, 
we can't take God to Jerusalem now. I mean, it's too, it's too risky. It's too dangerous. He, he might break out and kill all of us. So we, we can't have God loose. Well, that's the worst possible conclusion. We can't, have, we can't have God loose in our lives, in our families, in our ranks, in our country. We can't have God loose. And so David looks at the crowd and probably just spontaneously looks at some guy that looks friendly and says, what's your name? And the guy probably said, well, I'm Obed-Edom, your majesty. I mean, this is the king of Israel. He's the most powerful man in the world. And he said, uh, do you live close by? And Obed-Edom says, well, yeah, we have a farm just down the road here a, a bit. David said, that's great. He said, would you, mind, would you mind taking the ark down to your place and keeping it for a while? <laughs> now, if you're Obed-Edom, the first instinct is, are you kidding? I'm not taking that thing. I'm not touching that thing. I'm not getting close to that thing. And so your impulse is to say, well, no, I can't store it at my house. But this is David. He's the king. I mean, what are you going to say to him? And so there's enormous social and, and, and psychological pressure. And so, so you can imagine Obed even say, well, yes, yes, sir, your majesty. I suppose, I suppose we could take it down and, you know, put it, put it in the garage or maybe the basement. Yeah, we'll put it in the basement and maybe throw a tarp on it and try to keep the kids away from it <laughs> because it's not safe. And, you know, how long do you think I'll have to keep it? At the death of Uzzah, David decides to live in his own strength rather than allow God to be loose among his people. Now, friends, listen to me. This is always the temptation when it comes, when it comes to spiritual renewal. The, 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 the subject of this message today is, is we give inspired by the Holy Spirit. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. When the power of the Holy Spirit, listen, gets loose in a life in a family, in a church, in a city, in a community, in a nation, in an entire culture. Here's what you need to know about this. When God gets loose, it turns everything upside down. If you invite God to be loose in your life, it will, it will, it will shudder and destabilize the status quo in your life. God is good and he is loving and he is great and he has our best interest in mind and he is altogether trustworthy, but he's not safe. He's not safe. He's not safe in your life. He's not safe in your... Jesus said it this way. He said to his disciples, do, do you think that I've come to bring peace? Now, this is the Prince of Peace asking the question. And we all realize, you know, we look to Jesus. He's our ultimate hope. He's the only one who can bring peace. He's, he, is, he, is our eternal, he is our eternal confidence that we can live in peace. And so we, we look to him as the peacemaker. But Jesus asked his disciples on one occasion, he said, Do you think, do, did you, were you confused? You thought I came to bring peace? He said, no, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. In other words, anything that has me introduced into it is going to get all kinds of separated, divided, set apart, upset, destabilized, turned on its head. <laughs> Are you okay with this? 
This is, this, is not the kind of, this is not the kind of gospel preaching that you'll typically hear. But it is absolutely true. When God begins to move, it is always good. Always good. Altogether good. But it's not safe. No, 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 no. No, not safe. There are dozens and dozens of denominations in America today who a hundred years ago were actually enjoying the presence of God's Spirit in their, in their denomination, in their, in, their, in their churches. And that has, that has long since gone away. Today we are giving witness in the year 2014, we're giving witness to the collapse, the, the utter collapse of hundreds of traditional denominational churches in the Western world, United Methodists included. Maybe the biggest example. A collapse of the institutional church. Why is that? One of the reasons is that about 100 years ago or so, leaders in churches decided, you know, okay, we can either have God's presence in the church, which is is really messy and hard to manage and unpredictable because when God gets loose, it's just such a hassle. Stuff happening all the time, people, people getting agitated and worked up. and Man, it's just, there's just, you know, all kinds of spiritual energy in the, in the air and it's just hard. Hard to deal with that. So here's what we should do. We should take the ark we should put it in Obed-Edom, and we should go back to Jerusalem and just manage things the best we can. Now, God knows we want to honor him. We want to, you know, we, we, we want to we be connected with him, and we want to, you know, represent, be symbolic of him. But, but having him loose is not, is not safe. It's not, it's not easy. And so 100 years ago or so, folks just put, put the Ark of the Covenant, as it were, in the, in the barn and threw a tarp over it. And that was that generation, and now a couple of other generations have come along, and now a generation that has not known the presence of God, not only questions whether or not God is even necessary, but whether we should believe the things that have always been embraced as true, as the orthodox Christian faith. And so things like the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection and the reliability of the scripture and those kinds of things, those have been dismissed as well. And we figure if we'll just use the terminology and use the God talk and do good things to help other people, then that'll be, that'll be really predictable, that'll be really safe, that'll be really honorable, and that way nobody gets upset, nobody gets uh, disturbed about that, everybody's happy, everybody's appeased, and we can just go along our merry way. The only problem with that, of course, is that if you don't have God's presence, then you do not have God's favor or his blessing. And so the church implodes. People's faith collapse in the absence of it. Sometimes there are going to be dangerous moments when we get close to God and he breaks out into areas of our lives and families and relationships and churches that we're not comfortable with. Always there are people confused and hurt and angry and judgmental. There's always a lot less upheaval when we keep God in the closet. But here's the problem. Here's the rub. Here's the tension. The same power, don't you see? The same power which broke out on Uzzah is also the power of God to save lost people. 
and to heal the sick and to redeem homes and restore marriages and establish ministries and reclaim lost people groups and set the oppressed free. The same power that came and broke out on Uzzah is the same presence that we need. Sometime later, David is told about the Ark of the Covenant with Obed-Edom. And he goes, oh gosh, I forgot about that guy. <laughs> I'm afraid Obed-Edom, all of his family, they must be dead by now. Must be dead. He sends a couple of soldiers to check it out. They return and they say, you're not going to believe what happened to the house of Obed-Edom. And David probably just moaned and said, okay, let me sit down. Okay, give me the bad news. Because he's just fearing the worst. And they say, your majesty, everything in the household of Obed-Edom has been blessed. His fields are blessed. When all around there is drought, his fields have rain. When there's a flood, his fields have the gentle dew. His fields are producing bushel after bushel more than his neighbors. He's built a new barn. He's put up two new silos. He's buried in grain. He bought a new John Deere tractor. His wife is pregnant, they think, with twins. Everything is prospering. The cats are having kittens. The dogs are having puppies. The kids are getting straight A's in school. The cows are giving more milk than they know what to do with. Everything in the household of Obed-Edom is blessed because of that ark. Because of the presence. <laughs> the danger, of course, the temptation for all of us is to choose safety over presence. Let's play safe. Rock the boat. You don't want to step into that water. It's too risky. It invites trouble. Folks will start scrutinizing me. It's hard enough to be a Christian in this culture right now when you're laying low let alone when you're standing out. And so people choose safety over presence. Second thought, it'll be brief. Could I just submit then that what we best should do is seek God's blessing God's way. Seek God's blessing God's way. David responds to this whole scenario appropriately. Here's what David surmises very quickly. We don't run God. God runs us. We don't do things our way. We do things his way. We might seek the renewing power of God's presence among us, but we must do it in God's way. David realized he didn't want to live without the presence and the power of God in his life or his nation's life. Therefore, David was willing to humble himself under the mighty hand of Almighty God and submit to God's way of expression to that work of His Spirit. And so he just simply said, restate the rules. What was God's order for the ark? We didn't, we didn't follow the protocol. I messed up. I messed up. And so David humbled himself and he began to seek then God's blessing, God's way. Last thought. This is how you receive then. Verses 12 and following from our text now they go back to Obed-Edom's house, and this time they do it God's way. This time humbly. This time obedient to God's law. This time in accord with God's commandments, God's plan. This time God does not Perez us on them, 
but rather he breaks forth upon them in amazing power and presence. He doesn't, he doesn't outbreak, but he breaks forth. This scene is an all-out revival meeting. It's as, it's as wild and festive and, and blessed and energized by God's presence and the worship and joy of God's people as any scene that ever has occurred in history. It's the same band, the same choir, the same soldiers, the same people now are all enveloped in the glory of God. And the primary target is David himself. Our reference today said that they'd only gone six paces. They got the ark on the shoulders of the priests, the Levites. They take six steps. The band starts playing, and they just take six steps. And David says, stop. And they sacrifice oxen and calves, and they make an offering to God. Now, this is, this is where we make the connection with our stewardship. This is when it starts to make sense to us. And David not only offers these animals before God, but now the Bible says he danced before God with all of his might. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like when a middle-aged man dances before God with all of his might? Chances are this isn't a choreographed dance. This isn't delicate. This is just going for it. This is just letting it all hang out. He's just, he's just dancing with all of his might. <laughs> it's quite a scene. David ex exemplifies for us a life of worship and praise to God. He puts it on display. When, when, a, Christian, uh, when a Christian comes to terms with these things, this, this level of connection with God, this inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen, uh, over the years I've had people ask me these questions and they've, they've either verbal, verb, verbalized them or they haven't said anything about it, but it's the same question that people think. When I become a Christian, do I have to go to church? When I become a Christian, do I have to pray? When I, have, when I become a Christian, do I have to be part of a small group? When I become a Christian, do I have to give my money? When I become a Christian, do I have to do those things? And the answer, the answer to a person asking those questions is... No, you don't have to do any of that. No, none of that is required. No, that's not the point. You don't have to do any of that. The, 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 the response is when God's spirit begins to invade your life and changes your life and impassions your life, then you don't have to, you get to. You want to, it's joy for you. You see, life in the spirit takes that which is dead in the past and brings it to life in the present. Tithing, giving is like that. We, we give not out of compulsion or obligation or guilt or shame, but rather out of joy and faith and compassion and obedience and cheerfulness. Giving is not my bounden duty, but rather that which delights my heart and delights the heart of God. That's what the inspiration of the Holy Spirit does. It makes all the difference. David not only blesses God, but then he begins to bless the people. He virtually emptied the treasuries of, of Israel in order to bless everyone. Thousands of people with a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each person, man and woman in the crowd. Now think of this. We're talking about millions of dollars here. And in a moment of incredible blessing and joy and inspiration and worship, watch what happens. The spirit of generosity and liberality gets loose on David. 
I'm going to put this statement on the, on the screen for you. I want you to get it. Life in the Spirit. Look at it. Life in the Spirit is always typified by open-handed and open-hearted generosity. It's not a coincidence that the first impulse David had was to worship God and the next impulse was to be generous. I just don't believe it's possible to be filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit and be stingy in your heart. Those are incongruent. They don't work together. I believe it's a, almost an abomination to God to experience the touch of God's Spirit and to, and to flow in, 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 the, in the beauty of His presence and the Holy Spirit and at the same time be stingy. Stingy with God, stingy with stuff, stingy with relationships, with emotions, with compliments. Stingy in life. This is, I don't, those don't go together. David, on the other hand, was open-handed and open-hearted, generous toward God and the people. For David, the tithe wasn't enough. He just wanted to keep blessing people. I heard someone say, if tithing grieves, grieves your spirit, then you haven't gone far enough. In other words, people say, you should give until it hurts. And that's just terrible advice. Don't give until it hurts. Give until it helps. Give until it helps. Till you receive joy in giving. The, the, the best way to break the power of greed and the grip of man, mammon off your life is to give. See, mammon always says, hold on to me. Don't let go. Trust in riches. Hang on to, all, hang on to your stuff. The problem with the power of mammon is that it also grabs you back. You grab it, and it grabs you back. It's just like sticking your fist in mud, and it just grabs you, and then your other fist is stuck, and then you put your right foot in, and then it's stuck. There's only one way that I know, and it's a fabulous and effective way to defeat the power and grip of mammon, of money in your life, and that is whatever clutches at you, give it away. Give it away. Charles Dickens' beautiful Christmas story we celebrate around the holidays, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, the story's classic. And you watch some of the, the film versions of it, and you watch old Scrooge, and you just go, come on, man. That's not how you live. What's the matter with you? And you just, you, kinda, you kind of cheer for him all the way through, and you say, come on. Come on, you can, you've got to do better than that. And, of course, by the end, his repentance issues forth in the inspiration of God and generosity and liberality and love and cheer, which results in blessing and abundance and joy. I mean, Tiny Tim does live. It's life-giving when this happens. And the one thing the world, the flesh, and the devil cannot comprehend is giving because it runs so contrary to the human tendency towards selfishness. David couldn't give enough. He, got, he gave to God through offerings and praises and sacrifice. He gave to the people and the joy of the people. And David danced. He danced before the whole city. He actually stripped down to his underwear. He, he had an ephod on, which was just kind of a little lap robe. And so, he, so he, he, he's down to his underwear with a little lap robe on over that. And he's dancing with all of his might. Now, this isn't, this isn't a 22-year-old man in the prime of his physical life. This is a middle-aged boy who's been through some wars. I mean, he's got some marks. He's got some bulges. <laughs> you know, he's got some issues. And he's out there dancing with all of his might because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was experiencing the renewing work of God. God, God busted out on that guy, burst forth on him. He threw his clothes, began to dance. 
Now, listen, guys, I don't recommend you do this. I'm not recommending it, uh, believe it or not. On the other hand, I bet we could have a crowd next week if we could get someone to do it. For example, if we could get Glenn Greiner to get down to his underwear and just dance with all of his might, I bet you'd come just to see that. Yeah, it would be kind of fun. As far as we know, in this story, David is the only one who danced, as far as we know. And everyone was delighted. The soldiers, the choir members, all the people were pleased with the king's worship. And here's what I believe. When the, when the Spirit of the Lord comes to a church, it, it has a liberating effect. So that the dancers can let the non-dancers go, and the non-dancers can let the dancers go. No matter what, what you need to express your worship is okay. Because there's a spirit of liberty and generosity and open-heartedness. See, the spirit of, of God in a church is a generous spirit, a loving spirit, a joyful spirit, a worshiping spirit, an open spirit. That's what it is. Now look how this story ends. We'll be done. Verses 20 to 23. David gets home. His wife, Michael, has been watching him from the second story window. And David is in a good frame of mind when he gets home. In fact, the scripture says that he went home to bless his family. My hunch is he was willing to do anything for his family that day because he was so blessed and so encouraged. And the first thing he gets is this scornful response from his wife. He walks in the front door and she, she uh, lacerates him. And he immediately discerns the problem. They're of different spirits. And he, he says to her, look, I humbled myself before God and the people and God honored me for it. And on the other hand, you are still angry with God and still angry with me because God chose me over your father and anyone else in your family to lead this nation. He immediately discerns her issue. You'll note in the, you'll note in the scriptural context three different times Michael is referred to not as the wife of David, but rather the daughter of Saul. There's something to that. I don't know this, but I can imagine that there's nothing worse than a cold-hearted, loveless, unspiritual, flesh-centered marriage. can only imagine. She was angry as she looked out that window and saw her husband dancing. Now, she didn't see the rejoicing, did she? She didn't see the worship. She didn't see re the revival. <laughs> All she saw was her little subgroup of cronies that would sit around and criticize David in private. Her problem was that she didn't have her eyes on her husband. She didn't have her eyes on the kingdom of God. She had her eyes on herself. And there it is, the bond of iniquity, gall of bitterness. She missed the Holy Spirit and probably the most joyful day in her husband's life. She missed it. Life in the Spirit is about relationships. It's about loving each other. It's about loving God more than you love money. It's about being generous and open-hearted. It's about being unshackled and unfettered and free. It is a lifestyle which is a hallelujah from head to toe. It's about giving in faith, giving in surrender, giving in joy. It's not about giving to get or making some kind of cold-hearted business deal with God. It's about dancing before Him because you've run out of ways to express your love to Him. You just don't know what else to do, so you just take off. 
<laughs> so friend, don't allow stingy, miserly living spoil your relationship with God. Heard the story of an old-timey, uneducated preacher. He preached about Michael from this text on one occasion, and he entitled his message, If you don't dance, you ain't going to have no babies. <laughs> if you don't dance, you ain't going to have no babies. Now, of course, he may have missed the point, but the sermon title was memorable. Now, it doesn't say the wife of David. It says the daughter of Saul. And we don't know. The last verse of chapter 6, 2 Samuel says that Michael did not have children at any point in her life, which was a terrible state for a woman in those days. We don't know. We don't know if David simply had enough and refused conjugal relations with her. We don't know if she simply became an emotional and physical desert. We don't know the story. But maybe that old timey preacher is right. If we live our lives cooped up, pinned up, bound up, angry, stingy, living in last year's problems, clenching it over every penny, criticizing, hurtful. See, a person living in this state cannot bear fruit. A church living in this state cannot have spiritual children. A marriage that lives in this kind of resentment and bitterness cannot produce. So friends, here's my advice. Whatever stands between you and God and keeps you from that inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that liberated life, free and open and joyful and hopeful in God's provision, whatever it is that stands between you and God, would you give that away? Just give it away. Turn it loose. And invite God the Holy Spirit into your life, afresh and anew. Because in him you find life. Not safe, but good. So be encouraged today. Amen? If you have an ear, I hope you'll hear it. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, uh, first we confess our sins. We have all, each one of us have been tempted. Lord, if you don't mind, would you just uh, maybe stay out in the garage for a while? Your, your presence is really disruptive. And every one of us, every single one of us, from time to time, have thought, let's just throw a tarp over that and try to make it on our own for a while. Lord, we confess our sins because we don't run you, but rather you order our lives. And so help us to submit to your good plan. Lord, help us to do your work in your ways. And Lord, give us an open-handed, open-hearted response to life, liberated with joy and worship and generosity by the work of your Spirit in us and among us. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, the people said.